Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Lord, um, we declare today, though some of us sense it, some of us don't, that you are present everywhere. You are present in the hearts of your people. You are here, you are near. The story you've been writing since the dawn of time has been a story for our good. And your invitation is for us to unclench our fist, to open our eyes, perhaps not with cynicism or fear, but to see that you are for us, that you are for the world, that you have not come to destroy, but to set free, to give life. And it usually comes in ways that we don't expect. So you ask us to be generous, even when we don't have it, trusting that you are the God who provides. You ask us to take steps of faith, even when they seem super illogical trusting that your words are truer than our circumstances. Lord, as we finish this series today, as we finish this story, the Exodus, would you speak to every heart here? Would you encourage them? Would you tell them that you are present and that you're writing a good story in their life if they'll allow you? Jesus, you're alive. And all our hope rests on that fact. We love you. Inhabit our praises. Amen. So if you're joining us for the first time, you're coming at the very last day of a very long series. Guys, we finally made it. We're at the end of the paradigm. What started five months ago on July 1st is now ending And I am glad you are here with me, Samwise, here at the end of all things. (laughs) It's not that dramatic, but there might be another Lord of the Rings quote in there. We'll see. We'll see. And what a journey it's been. We've been traveling through the story of Exodus, essentially making the contention that within the story of Exodus is the one story. It's the meta-narrative. That wherever you are, whatever time period, whatever uh, continent, you can look at this story and locate yourself therein. That how God interacts with the world and with his people uh, is a paradigm for how he will always interact with his people in the world. So brief recap, brief recap. We awaken in this story in Israel, what was a family is now a people, a people in captivity. They're enslaved in Egypt. They call out, they groan under their oppression. God hears them. God sends a mediator named Moses. He has his own backstory. Moses is sent to Egypt. He's sent to Pharaoh and he tells Pharaoh, let God's people go so that they may worship me in the desert. Pharaoh displays tremendous arrogance and says, absolutely not. And so then God, through the hand of Moses, inflicts plagues on Egypt. And we talked about how these plagues were not arbitrary. These plagues carried the natural consequences of our decisions. So one of the first plagues was, that the Nile, the water source, was turned to blood. And you might think, well, that seems arbitrary. Well, not really, because a civilization 
built on slave labor will eventually produce rivers of blood. God just hastened that for them. So the plagues have memory. They have theological potency in them. And then finally it culminates in the last plague, the 10th plague is the death of the firstborn, which not only uh, afflicts uh, humans, but animals alike. Israel is spared because Israel puts the blood of lamb of a lamb over their door, their door frame. And so the destroyer passes through Egypt and kills the firstborns. And that breaks Pharaoh and he says, fine, go, go worship your God. Israel passes out of Egypt and they get to the Red Sea. And around the Red Sea, that's when Pharaoh sort of goes, well, what did I just do? And he sends all his forces to pursue Israel again, but they don't overtake him. Even though Israel passes through dry land because the waters part, as Egypt tries to go through, the waters come back down and drown the Egyptians. So now Israel is entirely God's people, no longer Egypt's and no longer Pharaoh's. And so they were a people uh, of captivity and now they are sons and daughters of the most high God. And they're figuring out what does that mean? How do we do this? They do it very poorly, just so you know. I don't know if that comforts you, but they do it very poorly. They complain, they grumble, they curse. Um, and God is very gracious. He gives them bread from heaven. He gives them water out of a rock. He continues to lead and shepherd his people. They arrive at Mount Sinai in the desert. And that's when God begins to impart the most sustained section of revelation. He reveals himself to his people. He gives them the law, the 10 commandments, which we said is more like a philosophy. It's a way of life. He gives them his way of life. And then he fleshes that out through Moses. And then he gives them instructions for how to build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is a portable tent that will go with Israel in all of their journeys, right? And that will be, that's where God's presence will be. Moses was the point of contact between God and Israel. Now it's gonna be the tabernacle. But before Israel can build it, they grow afraid because circumstances happen. And that's what we humans do. We grow afraid. And out of their fear, they build a golden calf as a realistic compromise to try to not only appease their God, who they're learning who he is, but also to appease society's values. And what starts as the fearful compromise ends in flat out debauchery. And Moses and God are really angry and God's like, I'm done. I'm done with this people, it's too much. But Moses, the mediator, saves the day. He goes to God and says, no, 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 no. No, you remember that you're the one writing this story. You called me. I didn't ask to do this. And so then God finally says, okay, because I'm pleased with you, Moses, because I'm pleased with the mediator, I'll go with this people. And then just last week we talked about, okay, the story's back on and Israel builds the tabernacle. They construct all the pieces and they bring the pieces to Moses. And then this is the last line, the last paragraph in the Exodus story. This is the summation statement. It's what we read, the final scene. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And all the journeys of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night 
in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their journeys. Exodus is a story about nation building. What is a family in the book of Genesis becomes a people at the start of Exodus, becomes a nation, a community with a purpose at the end. And we said that's the paradigm because where Exodus is telling the story about how God builds a nation, the, the meta-narrative is how God is building a world where he's building a people from every nation on the final page of this story. So this is the last scene. This is the last image of the story. And we see three characters in this final image. We see Moses, we see God, and we see Israel. And so the simple question for us today is to sort of bring these threads together of what do we know about each one of these characters here at the end of all things? Well, the first thing about Moses, we know that Moses finished the work. We talked about this a bit last week. The Israelites were tasked to build all the structures and the artifacts for the tabernacle, but they did not set up the tabernacle. They brought the pieces to Moses and Moses set up the tabernacle. Moses put pole by pole in. Moses set up the curtains. Moses put the wash basin and the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. Moses was tasked with breathing life into the tabernacle system. Moses has been the connection point between God and Israel. And here in his final action, he relinquishes that role and he breathes life into the tabernacle. He passes the torch, so to speak. He transferred the life that was within him, the providence, uh, the favor that was on him. He transferred that into the tabernacle. Or we might say, finished is the time of the elves and so begins the age of men. That's the last one, I promise. And thus, I think it's so simple and beautiful, the final statement we read. After all Moses has been through, after all he's done, the last thing we read of him, Moses finished the work. Is that not the most poetic and just profound statement? May it be said of every one of us that we are simple bit players in a grand story and that when our, our day comes that we can say, I finished the work that was given to me. The mediator's job was to breathe life into the new creation and he did it. And as we said last week, where's the paradigm in this? Well, we'll, we'll hear about another mediator, the first mediator, Jesus, who God has written himself into the story. And as Jesus is unjustly hanging on a cross, dying, even though he doesn't deserve to die, he's done nothing wrong, but dying voluntarily for the world's sake. We read in John 19, 30, when he had received a drink, Jesus said, and it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus's final action by breathing out his last, he breathed life into a new creation. And in his resurrection, he became the new and eternal tabernacle in his body. Whereas before in this story, it's a, an actual edifice, it's wood, it's curtains, it's all that. But in the, the final paradigm, the new creation, it's in the body of a human. He is the new and final tabernacle. So we see that Moses finished the work. What do we see of God in this last scene? We see that God 
is both near and far. And you're like, well, that's confusing. What do I mean by that? Well, it reads in the final summation statement that the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It filled it so densely that Moses could not enter it because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord had filled it. I love that, that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle so much that even Moses could not enter. Here in the final scene, Moses is grouped with Israel, not with God. God is in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is among the Israelite camp. He's with Israel, but yet his glory is so great that no one can draw near. The paradigm is that God is always both near and far. We have a God who is among us, but we still say, but where are you? You know what I mean? And I think that leads us straight to uh, the chapter of the story that we're about to start celebrating next week, the incarnation. When we read of the God who wrote himself into the story and was born into the world as a baby, I love this. I heard a scholar say once, the incarnation is God saying to the world, I cannot be understood, but I can be touched. The incarnation, when God is born into the world, it's Jesus saying, look, you're not gonna understand me necessarily, but you can touch me. You can see me. I will be with you and you can trust me. I heard this story a while back um, uh, about a soldier in the Vietnam War. And he entered into a room and it was like a hostage situation. Um, and, and there were Vietnamese there and he was trying to quietly lead them out. But they didn't trust him because they couldn't communicate. They didn't speak the same language. Um, he looked very scary. He had a gun. Uh, they just didn't trust him. And so thinking quickly, what he did was he took off his gun and he laid down among them. He cuddled with them because they were huddled off to the side to demonstrate to them that he was a friend, that he was with them. I think that's what we see in the incarnation. That's what we see in God. We see a God who's three-dimensional showing up in two-dimensional, you know, among us. And we can't really communicate. It doesn't, like, we don't understand him. He's so holy. He's so other that the glory is so dense that we don't know necessarily, are you a friend or a foe? But he enters into the story in weakness. He draws near and he says, you can't really understand necessarily. It's hard for us to communicate. We'll get there, but I have not come to hurt. I've come to help. I've come to save. We have a God who in this final scene is near us is in the camp, is among us, but is still in glory so dense that no one can draw near, not even Moses. And then finally, Israel. If Moses finished the work, if God is both near and far, what of Israel? Israel is a people of journeys. The last line we read is this. In all the journeys of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they'd set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their journeys. Now, I highlighted a word 
because there's a really interesting Hebrew construction going on in this passage. And that's the, the, the yellow highlight is the same word in the Hebrew. It's just functioning as a noun or a verb. The word is nasah, which means to set out, to journey. It's used throughout the Exodus constantly. What's so interesting about the way it's used here at the end of the story is this. In verse 36, it says, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, Israel would set out. They would nasah. But then in verse 38, it says that the cloud would stay over the tabernacle by day and it would stay in a fire by night. And this was in the sight of the Israelites during their journeys, their nasahs. What the Hebrew author is trying to say is whether Israel is moving or whether they're encamped, they're still in a journey. It's still called a journey. Or as one um, rabbi said, Israel is the wandering nation. Israel is on a perpetual journey. To be the people of God is to be ever looking for your home and never fully finding it here. And what's so incredible about this story is that God built a nation without the land. And we've talked about this a bit before. Once he called them out and he took them to Mount Sinai, yes, they're heading to a land, but before they even get there, he gives them his philosophy. He gives them his way of life. And then he instructs them to build a portable home, a tabernacle. So no matter where, they're, whether they're moving or in camp, they are still his people. He built a nation that is able to function without land. In the ancient world, and still even today, theology is linked with geography. So in the ancient world, the gods of the Ammonites only had sovereignty in Ammonite kingdoms. The gods of Egypt were only powerful in Egypt. And yet the first thing we see is a God who basically says, I have power over Egypt too. I am the God of really nowhere and therefore everywhere. The world is my home. But that's not necessarily the territory I'm trying to claim. Because what does he do? He builds a people where their security is not in their land, but in their God. It's a relationship that defines this people. A relationship with their God. For Israel, security is not in a place, but in a person. Because God is found not in a region, but in a people. There is a war being waged between heaven and hell, but the battlefield is in the hearts of humanity. That is the area where God is attempting to build his people, his kingdom. And so how is this the paradigm that Israel is the wandering nation, that to be the people of God is to ever be looking for your home? In a sense, it's to kind of be in a temporary home wherever you are. Well, we read in First uh, Peter, Peter wrote a letter to the church in Rome and the church, which is founded around worship of Jesus, Jesus Christ, is made up of both Jews and non-Jews. So they're figuring out what that means. They come with their own cultural stories, their own um, political backgrounds. 
And this is what Peter says. He says, as you come to him, talking about Jesus, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion. We just sang about it. I lay a stone in Zion, in the new heaven and the new earth, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who don't trust, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. The paradigm is where Israel was building a structural tabernacle. Now, guess who's become the new tabernacle? Us. The new tabernacle where God is among his world is the church. It's those who have been baptized into the name of Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation or he's the cornerstone of Zion. He's the first stone. He's the stumbling stone. It all pulls into that gravitational center. But for those of us who have turned our eyes and are saying, whoever you are, Jesus, you are worthy of my heart's pursuit, my heart's desire. And are pursuing him and are baptized into his name and given his spirit, we now become living stones of the new tabernacle. You, Hope Brooklyn, are the home of God in this world. And it's emerging from within the old creation. The new creation is emerging from within the old creation, but it's not a territory. It's in the hearts of those who gather around Jesus. It's in the hearts of those who worship him. And therefore, as Peter says, as strangers and aliens. We too have been included into the people of Israel. We too are looking for our final home. And we look by praying out, come Lord Jesus. We too are now part of the wandering nation. So Jesus finished the work. God is building that work in our hearts. He's both near and far and we're the people who have become the new tabernacle of the new creation. It's really, really beautiful. And in just in case that didn't convince you that God is the master storyteller, one other little like mic drop moment. Well, you might not think it's mic drop. I definitely thought it was a mic drop moment when I read this. So there's a literary technique called a chiasm. And a chiasm, I think we have a slide. It works like that. So the author presents a detail. We'll say detail A. And then the author presents another detail, detail B. And then theoretically that can go on to infinity. You can present as many details as you want. But there is a middle point. And when the author gets to the middle point, then they start going backwards and they return to detail B. But it's not the same as the first time. Or as we might say, and as we have said earlier, 
uh, history rhymes, it doesn't repeat. So it's that same detail, but it's a little different. And then it's A again. And the reason why uh, it's called a chiasm is because it kind of makes an X, which is the Greek letter uh, chi, makes an X, which is also fascinating because in the Greek, the word Christ starts with the letter chi, or we might just say X really does mark the spot. So a literary technique where details are presented and then presented again in reverse order to form a symmetrical pattern. And why that's interesting is because the story of Exodus is a chiastic structure. And then if you look at the story of Genesis and Exodus, it forms a chiasm. And then you go forward and you look at the story of the world as it gets through all of Israel's history and into Jesus and into the church, it's chiastic. And I would dare say, if you examined your own story, it would form this same chiastic structure. And for any of you physics nerds in here, and I'm still going through the book on string theory, it's kind of like a dimension within a dimension, which still blows my mind. So physics people, please help explain it to me because I don't get it quite yet. But there really is one story. There's one structure being played out in Exodus and Genesis Exodus. And it's absolutely beautiful. So here's what we see. We see the creation of the universe in Genesis one through three. God creates the world and says, it's good, let it be. And then immediately after creating, the first humans fall. They fail in Genesis three through six. We learn about how Adam and Eve disobeyed. There's a punishment for that failing. In this case, it's the flood in Genesis 7 through 10. But the punishment doesn't work. It doesn't get the result that God's looking for. The people are still rebellious. They still don't turn toward their God. And so there's a display of tremendous hubris. After the flood, it comes in the form of the story of the Tower of Babel, where all of humans, they try to build a tower to, uh, they try to, build a tower, um, to make a name for themselves. And from that hubris, God uh, has a different plan. He calls a person to create a family, Abraham. And he says, from you is gonna be my people, my family. And so the rest of Genesis tells the story about that family of the covenant. But then we open in the book of Exodus. And the first thing we see is that point C, so to speak, the people of the covenant in Exodus 1 through 4. And then we're working backwards and we're introduced to the character Pharaoh who displays tremendous hubris and denies this God. There's a punishment, but it's not the flood this time. This time it's the plagues. God sends the plagues to display his glory, to say, I am sovereign over this world. I created it. It's sort of all mine, though I've lent it to you. And even out of those plagues, even after Israel is called out, we still see the people and her failings. Israel fails constantly. She grumbles, um, she complains, she builds a golden calf. And then where does the story of Exodus end? With the tabernacle, the new creation. Genesis and Exodus forms this chiastic structure, but it doesn't end there. And you could do this uh, both small or big, I would contend. But as the story goes on, we have the new creation with the tabernacle, but Israel doesn't get it. And so as you read the the history of Israel, you'll constantly read time and time again of her failings. Even though she's the chosen people of God, she fails. And there's a punishment. Probably the most um, famous is the Babylonian exile, 
where Israel's destroyed, the temple's destroyed, they lose their land, and they're, they're scattered to Babylon and across the world. And then hubris, take your pick, basically. Our human history is one story of hubris after another. We can say it's the Babylonians, we could say it's the Persians, we could say it's the Greeks, we could say it's the Romans. We just display hubris. We say we don't need a creator, we can govern ourselves, but we're doing a really good job at that, aren't we? And then out of that hubris, there comes Jesus. The people, the person, true God and true man. In Jesus's ministry for three years, he announces the kingdom and it's something absolutely different from anything anyone has ever seen. It's accompanied by healings. It's accompanied by powerful teaching. It's accompanied by the presence of God and everyone is afraid of it. They want it, but they're terrified of it. And so we see the hubris of both Rome and Israel by crucifying Jesus. They, they, they do whatever they can. They do the most they can and they crucify Jesus. But here's the key right, right now. Where you would expect to see another punishment, the chain is broken because Jesus is resurrected. God doesn't punish humanity for her failings here. Instead, he receives it and is resurrected and breaks the chain of him attempting to act on the world and the world rejecting it. That's really what the story is all about. God is attempting to call out to the world and draw the people to him and they reject him time and time again. So he enters in, he receives the rejections of the world and he swallows them up as we read. Jesus is raised to life. He's alive right now. And we await his return. And therefore, from the resurrection, we have the people, the church, and our failings. Just to, you know, continue the trend. We fail, but it all pulls toward the gravitational center, which is Christ. And from, that's sort of the chapter we're in right now, the church chapter, awaiting uh, the final A detail, Jesus's parousia, which is the Greek word for um, appearance, eminence. We're awaiting Jesus's return. And then at that point, I assume, though I don't know, that the chiasm will continue and we'll get to chapter one of the great story. I wanna invite the worship team back up. And I just wanna spend a moment in prayer. So would you close your eyes with me? Father, we know that you are the great author and you're writing the great story. We know that your desire, your entire singular hope and purpose is for your people to discover what true life really means. For the story we have just read, I pray that every heart here would examine it 
and that their hearts would be exploded with the magnitude of who you are, God. A God who loves us, though we constantly reject you, rebuff your advances, distrust you. Here at the end of the story, we see that all you're trying to do is be among us. Be so close to us, dwell within us. As a people, as individuals, you are the God who desires to come near, to be one. And your words have always been and will always be love, love, love. I will sacrifice it all for you. I have sacrificed it all for you and I'll do it again and again and again. Let me write the story. Trust me. Open your eyes and see that I have come to set you free. If there's anyone here, Lord, who doesn't know what that means or is scared at that, but whose heart is burning within them, who says maybe uh, in my mind it doesn't necessarily make truth in the fullest sense, but my heart says this is true. This is true. And it's truer than anything else I've experienced. Then my prayer for them is that they would open their fist and say, Lord Jesus, come in. I turn my eyes toward you. And for my family here, Lord, my brothers and sisters, who we have seen that you're alive, the eyes of our heart have been opened. We've chosen to follow you. But we continue to fail. It's part of the story. We continue to uh, lose our vision, look at the world, take our eyes off of you, grow despondent, we despair. We hurt others and we ourselves are hurt. Would you open our eyes and put us on our knees to say all hope is in you, Jesus. Jesus, 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 name above every name. Would you minister to your people? Would you tell them you're not ashamed of them? You tell them you're not angry. Tell them there's been nothing but delight and love and that they can trust that you're writing their story and you're writing a good one. And the best stories require pain too. The best stories require pain. That's how transformation happens. You are with them. He is with you, church. He is with you. Thank you for this story, Lord. Give us eyes to see how you're writing it every day. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.